So uh, I often, in September, take a couple weeks to review the practice that we do here formally in our daily meditation periods, but informally all day long. And of course, there are many ways to think about meditation practice. There isn't one way. This is just a way to hold the practice. And I'll talk about the practice in three parts, but actually we're doing all three at the same time, or seamlessly integrating the three parts. But in terms of training, you might want to specifically understand each of these three trainings that we do. You can work on this during daily life, at any time really, and then formally during your daily sitting time to deepen your practice. And of course the whole point of this path, we call it sometimes, or the Buddha called it the path of awakening, the whole point of this path is to see what we're not seeing. Coming out of this understanding the Buddha had and I think a lot of us also recognize that the basic problem in our life, existentially, is that we're disconnected. We're not seeing things clearly. We're living our whole life acting from this place of misunderstanding, not being connected. And all sorts of problems arise out of that disconnection or that misunderstanding. So we set off on this path of awakening. We're awakening we're waking up, waking up out of misperceiving, out of disconnection, out of misunderstanding to a deeper, more clear understanding. Oh, it's like this. And we all know this. It isn't that, you know, this is somehow specific to Buddhist meditation practice. I mean, how many times in our life, even well before we heard about Buddhism or Buddhist meditation practice, did we have those aha moments, you know, where we were literally not seeing something blind to some pattern in our mind, some emotional pattern, let's say, something in a relationship that we just blind to. And then one day, for whatever reason, the mind was more in balance and it just became clear, oh, this is what's going on. I was missing it, but now, now I see, this is what's going on. Oh, there's that insecurity. And then out of that insecure feeling, I act this way, and out of me acting that way, the situation unfolds, and this is what's going on. And then having seen it relatively clearly, it's like another degree of freedom. There's another way to be in that situation because of that clear seeing. The mind no longer misunderstanding or missing, misperceiving what's going on. So this whole path is just a systematic way of seeing what we're not seeing. And so it really begins uh, from a recognition that when the mind is in a funk, feeling a little put upon by life, feeling betrayed by life, or when the mind is, you know, really entranced with some sense pleasure, really wanting something, hoping for something to happen, that it's not capable of doing any sort of useful investigation. Any kind of waking up is going to come out of what we call right view or some wholesome attitude of mind. And so it's like the prerequisite foundation for any 
any clear seeing, any investigation, any insight. So we make it, we formalize it in our sitting practice. As soon as you sit down and settle in, let's say you have 30 minutes or 45 minutes, the first thing you want to do is you want to check your attitude. Check the attitude of the mind. You can even ask yourself, literally ask yourself, how's the mind doing right now? Or what's the shape or quality of the mind right now? Is it depressed? Is it bright and shiny? Is it relaxed? Is it tight? Is it expansive? Is it narrow? Is it light or heavy? So we're interested. And then we're interested, well, what can I do? What attitude, what kind of thinking can I do to sort of create a useful base or foundation to do this practice out of? And I mentioned in the, at the beginning of our guided sit tonight that one of the easiest ways to correct or reestablish a wholesome attitude is just to simply remember, you know, as we're sitting there, we're getting settled, feeling relatively stable and comfortable sitting, and just to realize there is this life here, this mind and body, and I care about it. And it doesn't need to be some unusually deep feeling of compassion for oneself, but just a basic recognition. I do care about this life. It cuts through so much superficiality, just that recognition. I do care about this life. It isn't easy being a human being, having a life, having a body, having a mind, a conditioned mind, a habit mind, right? It isn't easy having relationships, having to earn a living, having to feed this body and have shelter, get along. None of this is always easy or even often easy for us human beings. So we could just recognize that. And then notice how it shifts everything. All of a sudden, we're relating from this softer, more engaged, more intimate way with life. Oh, oh. It's like a sinking in. There are other ways to reestablish right view. Like, the, and, and often the ways to reestablish a good, wholesome attitude is to notice how the attitude is off and then to do something that's opposite of that. So if we've been, if our mind has been really fragmented with thinking, God, you know, I need that new iPhone or whatever, you know, I need a car that gets better gas mileage. These are the things that have been coming up in my mind. <laughs> for a while I thought it was cool having one of those ancient flip cell phones you know thinking uh, you know I'm the coolest person in the room I'm not tied up and getting a smartphone and haven't learned to text yet and <laughs> but now I realize as my life gets busier and busier well there are a couple good reasons for having these phones <laughs> more details to manage. But anyway, I, I haven't come to any conclusion about it. But I just notice how my mind deals with these things. And when it is like really hypersensitive about like, oh, if that, if only that, if I only got my act together, really organized and got these shelves up at home so I could get my stuff organized there and finally clean out that closet and you know put all my files in order. So what sort of way could we correct that 
wrong attitude. There are many ways. Like one way is just to realize, you know what, honey? It, the work is never going to be done. doesn't mean you shouldn't do all that stuff, but it's never done. There will always be something to do. You see how that shifts something? It doesn't mean we shouldn't buy the iPhone and get all our addresses transferred so when we need to make a phone call or, or anything, I can check my email or I got my calendar there with my phone. It doesn't mean that there isn't some truth to that, but it's, it's teasing out this wrong view that if this, then life will be perfect, perfectly fine forever, which is really not true. And we actually know that, but we forget it. So by remembering that, right view gets reestablished, right? The mind isn't so clingy. It's more in this, this place of, well, I'll do what needs to be done as best I can. But I'm not expecting life to be perfect. That's not, my, that's not on my agenda. Because I'm understanding this is how it is. So that we have more of, a, of an acceptance more of a sense of space in the mind. So this is the beginning of meditation. We need a bunch of skillful means to correct the attitude. And not just at the beginning of the meditation, but all the way through. Whenever the attitude gets off the meditation and we're a little depressed, impatient, greedy, or whatever, aversive, fearful, how can we correct that so that there's this basic wholesome attitude I'm a human being doing the best I can. I care about this life. I realize it doesn't make sense to disengage, so I'm going to do my best to keep engaging, keep showing up, opening up, seeing deeply. I'm going to forgive myself because it doesn't make sense to be resentful or hateful in any way. It doesn't help. So this is what we mean by right attitude. In Buddhism, there's an easy way to remember it right attitude. So there are three unwholesome roots, and the opposite of those three unwholesome roots are what we call the three wholesome roots. This is going to make a lot of sense, and it's relatively easy to remember. So the unwholesome roots, greed or craving, aversion, which includes fear as well as hatred and impatience and things like that, and delusion, being disconnected, being confused, and... uh, misunderstanding the way it is. That's what we mean by delusion. So, right attitude means the not of those three things, you know, not being greedy. So, a basic sense of generosity, non-stinginess in the heart. Like, now, that's not actually so hard for us to reignite as an attitude. Like, what, what could you bring to mind right now that would be, that like, if you were feeling stingy, not having enough, what could you bring to mind that would make the heart feel generous or contented? It's like one thing you could do, just reflecting on what you're grateful for, like how nice it is that here we have this really nice room to gather in like this. It's safe. I'm guessing most of us feel relatively safe in the room. And, uh, you know, that people before us have worked really hard to kind of make this place the way that it is. 
and just how nice it is. And that these teachings are just available, they're so commonsensical and pragmatic. And just to appreciate that and see how all of a sudden we're not feeling so stingy. And then with that recognition, like how nice it is, like how nice it is that we're healthy enough to be here tonight. That doesn't mean everybody's perfectly healthy, but we're healthy enough to get in the car, get on the bike or whatever, and get ourselves here. That we have clothes that are relatively comfortable. And then it, it strips away, it removes any stinginess or discontentedness from the mind just by reflecting, appreciating, being grateful for what there is, the cool breeze. I mean, even something as simple, I don't know if you feel it, but I can feel the cool breeze coming out of the windows. And if I let my mind tune into that, I'm not thinking about the cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior. I'm just appreciating how nice it is to feel a cool breeze, that it isn't hot. So it's not so hard to correct the attitude in the mind. We just have to want to do it. We have to recognize that it's valuable, that it's actually wholesome to bring up a wholesome attitude. So non-greed isn't so hard. It isn't that hard for most human beings to rediscover a feeling of contentedness or a sense of generosity, a, a willingness to share, to wish well for. I mean, it's very easy. My dad's been sick lately. It's very easy for me to bring him to mind. He's staying with us now. And just, you know, to wish that he have a good rest or rela be relaxed, whatever he's doing. And see, that's a simple act of generosity, like just wishing well for him. And now my mind is back into balance instead of being caught in stinginess or wanting, craving. Same with aversion or ill will. We can correct that. I can bring my cat to mind. And it's very easy for me to care about my cat. And then that pushes out my ill will. Whatever ill will I have toward anyone can be replaced by, oh yeah, care about you, Sumi. You know, and so many other people in my life. And even this group of people that I maybe don't know so well, or some of you know I know pretty well, but a lot of you I don't. But I can have a, it's not so hard for me right now to have a general feeling of goodwill for everybody in the room. And how that, when I focus on that, when I hold that in my mind, then I lose the ill will. And the same with distractedness or delusion, you know, like choosing to be disconnected, choosing to be obsessed or distracted with this or that, but just to like be willing to come back to the present moment and, and know there is this body sitting here. Right? Just that basic um, acceptance of the experience of, of embodiment. Like, oh yeah, this is what it is to have a body. This is non-delusion, non-distraction, non-denial. It's not actually far away. And so we need to remember this, not just, of course, in our formal meditation, but all day long, that we can correct the attitude of the mind really hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. This would be just this part, not the other two, but just doing this first part of the practice would be really transforming for us. Throughout the 30-minute or 45-minute sit in the morning, let's say, and then throughout the rest of the day, if all we did is notice 
when the three unwholesome roots were established in the mind and made some kind of creative effort to bring in wholesome attitude, our life would be transformed slowly, gradually over the years. Guaranteed. I really, I think that's true. So that's the first part of meditation is to start there with noticing the attitude and being creative in how we correct the way the attitude is. And then the second step is what we normally think about as meditation. I talked about this last week, about learning to drop the world, learning to retreat from what the mind is normally doing, which is thinking and worrying and planning and wondering and comparing and judging, fantasizing, hating ourselves, thinking we're better than, thinking we're the same as, thinking we're worse than. So this is the kind of activity, this proliferation of the mind, the thinking mind. So we can drop that, but we can't drop it because we want to drop it. The way the mind drops that, it retreats from that, is we train the mind to do something, like know the breath coming in, coming in, coming in, know the breath going out, going out, going out. And this is a very powerful training. It sounds simplistic, like just to do one thing at a time. So during the day, you know, it may not be the breath, although it could be. There are a lot of times we can pay attention to the breath during the day. But it could be we're walking down the hallway and we're just 100% in the experience of walking. Seeing, hearing, moving the body. And just absorbing into that experience so fully that we're not using the time to speculate, to wonder, to compare, to figure something out, to analyze, to judge. We're taking that time to learn that the mind is capable of dropping everything. Now the thing about learning to drop everything is it also teaches the mind how to pick up everything. To pick up the world in terms of our story, like I'm a guy, or I'm this, or I'm that, or I've got to figure this out, or I need to do this next. The thing is we need to know how to pick things up to meet, to show up to life in a fresh way. But we can't be fresh unless we've learned also how to put things down. We really need to drop everything. And, and we just have to be truthful. Most of us aren't very good at that. And so we're never fresh, which means we're always relating to what's next in our life with a lot of baggage that's kind of resulting from everything being undigested from the previous moments. So we bring that baggage to the next moment. And because we're, we have all this baggage... We can't really show up, we can't really digest and respond to this moment because we've got all this baggage. So we're going to have leftover from this moment too, which we bring into the next moment and like that moment by moment. So this sometimes we call secluding the mind, retreating the mind, samadhi is the Pali word. So when the mind gets, we're, we're discovering, it's a true skill, developing the skill, we're discovering the mind can get profoundly simple. And in this great simplicity of mind, uh, a kind of spiritual, psychological, existential healing happens. Because the mind is continuously oppressed by unnecessary complexity due to the mind's constant obsession 
with its thoughts about things, its ideas about things, its idea about me, my idea about me, who I am, what I am, what I want to be, what I'm afraid of being, what I think other people think I am, who I am. The mind is obsessed by this. It never puts it down. It never gets a break, except maybe in deep sleep, or when the mind is fully absorbed in something. You know, that's why we do things. That's why people have hobbies. It's like a relatively inefficient way to get some samadhi, you know, because hobbies come with a lot of worry, too, a lot of obsession, which is different obsession. Say with movies. You know, when and I saw The Butler last night, it's a pretty good movie, I thought, um, about a butler at the White House over several decades, and so it's a lot about history and a lot about the history of the civil rights movement in the country. Um, but, you know, like movies, you know, in order to be successful, they just need a lot of drama. So this movie brought in a lot of drama. Um, and uh, so I, we need to put the drama down. We're not saying that there isn't drama. We're just saying that the drama that we're experiencing in our life, it has no perspective because we don't, we don't have some space, an empty, let's say, calm, steady space from which to meet the drama, the intensity of life. So this training, this middle part of the meditation practice where we're learning to let go of the world and just know the in-breath, the in-breath, the in-breath, just know the out-breath, the out-breath, the out-breath. And when the rest of the world wants to intervene and say, you know, look at me, look at me, that thought, that memory, that sound, that sensation, we're training my honey later. You can do whatever you want. But right now, I'm going to keep directing you back to the breath. Knowing the breath coming in, coming in. Knowing the breath going out, going out. And the mind wanders. And we redirect it. Like uh, I think Jack Hornfield once said, if you have a new puppy and it wants to pee on the carpet, eventually, you know, if, you're, if you want to protect your carpet, you you anticipate, you see the puppy about to pee, you take the puppy and you put it on the newspaper or you bring it outside. You know, and the puppy doesn't get it. But you keep doing it. And it, you know it doesn't help to get angry at the puppy. The puppy doesn't know better. So you're infinitely patient, you know, if you're a good friend of the puppy. And you're infinitely observant. You're really on top of it, really there. And you're just going to stick with it. There's that really powerful persistence. And that's really what um, this part of meditation depends on, is that persistence, that redirecting. So there's a lot of directing the attention. This. And that redirecting, that persistence is done in a gentle way, but it's persistent. Just because it's gentle doesn't mean the mind is sloppy or non-attentive. It's very attentive because it really matters. And we know that once the puppy does pee, it's going to think it's okay to pee. So it has to, it's like, it's so much more work when it's learned that it's okay to pee on the carpet. It's better for it never to learn that uh, or that couches aren't scratch posts or, you know, whatever, shoes aren't a plaything. So that persistence really pays off. And this is the same thing with this mental training we're doing with samadhi practice. It's like 
We want to be really persistent. If we're going to put in the time, let's really put in the time. Being half-hearted doesn't help. Being wholehearted really helps. So really wholehearted, but forgiving and gentle. Because being tight is not the cause for the mind settling down. Being relaxed is the cause. No, no, honey, this, 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 just this. Just know the breath coming in. It's okay. It's okay not to think about that now. It doesn't mean you won't think about it later. But right now, it's really safe not to pick that up, not to worry about that, not to plan that, not to remember that. All of these things will be waiting at the end of the set, like it or not. But for now, let's just continue with this training. We'll just come back. We're just feeling the body sitting, or we're feeling the breath moving in the body. We're just aware of hearing, just hearing, just no hearing. And what happens when we're really persistent with that middle part, that samadhi training, secluding the mind, retreating the mind, then something shifts at some point, and this really uh, supports the deepening of this practice or this training, is the object, which initially might be something like feeling the breath in the body, all of a sudden something shifts, and now what the mind is noticing is not so much that the breath is the anchor, but the unification of the mind itself is the anchor. The peacefulness of the mind, the stillness of the mind, the silence of the mind, the calm of the mind, the pleasantness of the mind, or sometimes some teachers say the beauty, the beauty of the mind, the inner beauty of the mind. It's the mind that is non-distracted, the mind that's not going out to thought, to concepts, to objects. That is, the mind has turned back in on itself. It's retreated into itself. So now sense experiences like sounds and sights and thoughts and sensations in the body are less relevant. Now I'm sure there are many of you in this room, like even me, I've had some pretty significant hip pain lately, hip and leg pain on my left side. And um, I notice, you know, when my samadhi is good, I, it's not a problem. But it's not like, I don't think that, it's that the pain has gone away. It's just my mind isn't attending to it. It's sort of turned back in on itself. So just as an example, like tonight, you know, initially I would be with the breath when I wasn't giving you instructions. And then, uh, you know, after a while, the mind started to notice the the inherent background of peacefulness. This isn't something the mind creates. It's just there when the mind isn't fragmenting itself, when the thinking mind isn't dissipating, fragmenting, agitating itself. How does the mind agitate itself? It constructs a picture, and then it's frightened by that picture, or worried about that picture, or is in trance and wants that, right? I could bring to mind like a really attractive object, something that really brings up lust or desire, and then my mind would get agitated. Or I could bring something really scary to mind, like, oh, you know, this person thinks I'm bad, or this problem is going to blow up in a couple days. And I could think about that, and my mind would get really agitated and would want to think about it. Because... 
when the mind is caught up in thought in something scary or something delightful, then it somehow thinks that the way to resolve that agitation is to think more about it. It never works, but it always thinks like it will work. I mean, it seems like it will work, right? Because we keep doing it. We keep thinking that if I just think about this a little bit more, things will settle down, things will get resolved, but it doesn't work that way. So when we learn to direct the mind to something simple, like sitting, like walking, like breathing in and breathing out, like hearing, and we really stick to it with real persistence, and we get some continuity with that, then right there with the experience that we're paying attention to, we'll also start noticing the mind that's not distracted. That's also an experience in the present moment. So right there, knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out, is knowing the mind that's not distracted, knowing the mind that's not fragmented, knowing the wholeness of mind. And actually that flavor of wholeness, is a, it's a useful word because it really has that flavor. There is a sense of the mind being whole, or not just the mind, the mind and body being whole or not fragmented. And it's pleasant in an unusual way, not like a pleasant like sitting in a bath, but an inner kind of happiness. And the Buddha said, he was very clear about this, he said, this is a sense pleasure that you don't need to worry about, like if you like it. Because the more you like it, it's like getting identified with it will make it go away. Like personalizing, oh, my mind's so peaceful. You know, we're falling in love with it. That will make it go away. What really deepens it, this particular inner pleasantness, what really deepens it is leaving it alone, like relaxing into it, not making a drama out of it, not making a personal drama out of it. Nobody gets deep states of meditation by making a personal drama about it. You leave it alone. Because it's arising, it's um, developing due to natural causes and conditions, which is the mind not going out into the world and worrying about this and thinking about that and judging and comparing. And It's the not doing that that leads to the, the development of what we shouldn't use the word concentration, but we often do, you know, deepening of concentration. But a better word is the unification of the mind or the unification of the heart. That's a better word than concentration because concentration for us always, for most of us at least, has this connotation of being tight and really focusing on something. And that's counterproductive because there's much more of a sense of relaxation and trust that supports the unification of mind. There is a very much a persistence, like we're not, it's like a, a very persistent shepherd. She or he wouldn't be letting those animals go where it's dangerous. No, 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 just stay right here. This is a safe place. This is where you should be. This is a good place for you. Just stay right here. It's really okay. You're going to be fine. I'm really on top of this. I'm telling you, for 30 minutes, for 45 minutes, for an hour, it's really safe for you to be here. You know, making the attention feel safe, reminding it it's really okay. Whatever works, basically, to sustain that present moment attention with the breath or whatever 
samadhi concentration object you're working with. Until that you begin to feel the inner peace, the inner stillness, the inner silence, the inner calm, and then you still can hold or use the breath or your object, but continue to or to also notice how the mind, that feeling of wholeness in the mind. Oh, this is wholesome. This is good. This is a pleasantness that's okay to open to, to relax with, to trust. And this brings out a profound, or this leads to a profound refreshment and healing of the mind. And it's really essential for the practice to develop. So the right attitude really allows the mind to settle down into samadhi, this unification, the second training. And then the second training allows for the third training to get some momentum. And we did this a little bit at the end of the sit tonight. And like I said at the beginning, actually all three of these should work seamlessly together. But initially, when you're getting your feet wet with the practice, really focus for or take up for periods of time each of the three separately. Like really formally practice the samadhi, the unification of mind, until you really get how it works. Really focus or bring up this right attitude. So you really, you've got a lot of creative ways to reestablish right attitude. You have some confidence at reestablishing a right attitude in your mind. No matter how the attitude has gotten off, you know how to shepherd it back to some wholesome version of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or generous contentedness, goodwill, loving-kindness, and a basic sense of, a basic value of being connected, not distracted, not diluted. And then those two first two practices lead to the third, which we call, often call in this tradition, wisdom or vipassana, inside practice. So here, the first two require the mind to direct itself. So there's this inner parent that's directing the attention. Same with right attitude, same with the samadhi, the seclusion part of the practice. We're actively directing the mind. This third training, we're letting go of the direction. We're not directing the attention. We're weaning out the doer. And so... Initially, it's the, it's the directing of the attention that's protecting us. I'm directing my attention towards right view in a skillful way, or I'm directing my attention to this neutral object, the breath, in order to let go of the world. Right? Now we're saying no more directing. And the mind is initially going to feel a little naked, a little helpless, like here I am, eyes open, ears open, body sensitive to touch, you know, mind sensitive to thought. I'm in this, this swirl of all these different experiences being known, and I'm not allowed to direct my attention. I'm not allowed to run away. I'm not allowed to hold on. And we feel really defenseless. And that means you know what you're doing in this third training. Because in order for wisdom to arise and to be the refuge of the mind, you have to let go of the other defense systems. As long as you're directing your attention, as long as you're constructing the sense of being the doer, and as the doer you're taking care of yourself, you're protecting yourself, deeper wisdom will never present itself. So you have to relax 
and be undefended. We call it, you know, as a meditation instruction, we often say, open. Just open up. What are you opening up to? Well, you're opening up to this mind-body experience. Things being known. Because that's what's happening now. Things are being known. But you're not doing anything else but being the one who knows. You're not directing. You're not doing. And so what is, how does wisdom arise? Well, wisdom initially arises by being that understanding that knows that when the mind is taking the experience that's being known personally, there's always tension. There's no way for the mind to be taking experience personally without the mind in that moment being tight or heavy or entangled in some way. So we just keep noticing that, that every time the mind takes the knee pain personally, the sound of Mark's voice personally, or anything personally, and has a personal opinion and a personal reaction, everything in the body-mind is getting entangled in that personal relationship that the mind has with experience. But when the mind is able to trust being more open, non-doing, just letting things be known, so just the knowing without the extra taking it personally, then the mind notices how light and easy everything is. How life, in a sense, happens on its own. Even our personality, even our response to the moment, everything is just happening on its own. And it's so easy and effortless. This life, it all just happens. So, initially wisdom understand suffering and the causes for suffering and non-suffering or non-stress and the causes for non-stress. And we have to keep seeing that, but we can't see that, we can't have that insight when we're directing the show. We can only see how it is when we have hands off. Then we learn something. So this basic insight that we as human beings really need can't happen when we're feeling right at the center and in control, because that sense of being in control and responsible for my experience masks what's really going on. It's actually a distortion. But initially we need it. We have to practice at that level where we're directing the mind to create, to support a wholesome attitude, and we're directing the mind to let go, to simplify the mind, to support the experience of peace and unification and stillness and contentedness. We need to be the doer doing those things. Of course, it's a pretty refined doer that can reestablish right attitude, a wholesome attitude that can direct the mind towards simplicity and stillness and peacefulness. But still, there's a very clear sense of directing the mind. I'm doing this, and it's skillful to do it. And then we go into this new territory that the doing now in this third part of practice is recognizing, like, the doing is understanding. That's all we're allowed to do. The only place the mind is allowed to do is it's allowed to understand. Oh, oh, this is how it works. When the mind's taking it personally, things get tight. When the mind's letting things be, things are, uh, things are loose and light. 
So that's what I mean by understanding. The more we understand that, the more we learn that lesson thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times, then the more natural it is for the mind to just let things be. And for most people, this is a very gradual unfolding where you might notice over a period of a couple of years that the mind is just less sticky than it used to be. It just knows, like organically, not to get enmeshed what, in what a couple of years ago would really cause a lot of enmeshment, a lot of complications, a lot of entanglement. But now, surprisingly almost, the mind's just not picking it up. It's not getting entangled. Well, what happened? Well, there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times that the mind has learned the basic lesson that when it takes something personally and experience personally, then it becomes personally involved, it becomes personally reactive, it becomes personally entangled and oppressed and weighed down by that personal relationship to that experience or that all that content, really. And when the mind doesn't do that, then it is free from doing that. It has experienced the non-doing of that, the non-effect or fruit of that. So it's free of all that. And it feels directly the lightness, you know, of that non-entanglement. And sometimes, I bet a lot of you have this experience where maybe something came up that, well, right, it's an edge for us in our practice. Like we have some space, some wisdom, to not pick it up, but not complete. So let's say uh, there's something sticky at work and uh, it's a power issue. And you kind of know that this is a, <clears throat> a hole that you can fall into and get a task get identified with. But you've fallen into that hole so many times, you also realize you don't need to fall into that hole. You don't need to take it personally. Yeah, there's this power play going on and you may end up on top or you may end up diminished in some way. But in the great scheme of things, it's not a big deal. And sometimes things go this way, and sometimes things go that way. And so you can notice that when you relate to it in this way, you get entangled, it feels like a big deal, the mind, the heart gets oppressed, everything gets serious. And even if you know you don't want to be serious when you're talking to this person, it gets serious, the voice is tight, they pick it up, they react, right? And then other times, when there's a, you, you know, seeing it from a different perspective, the heart isn't oppressed, isn't entangled, it's actually easy to interact with the person because the heart isn't personally invested, entangled. doesn't mean that on some superficial level it's not going to affect your life. It just means you're not trying to find some existential happiness from how this is resolved. Your happiness isn't a function of this particular dynamic in your life. We can have it with our body. You know, as we age or you, people get ill with di different things, it can feel very much like my personal happiness is dependent on what's going on with my body. And it can get very scary very quickly. And then another moment, we could say, well, however it turns out, it's going to be okay. I mean, either I'll get sick and die or just get sick and then get healthy, or I'm not going to get sick at all. But whatever it is, I'll do the best I can, and I'm okay with it. Because death will come anyway, and sickness will come and go anyway. 
and to make this personal drama around the ups and downs of the body, we don't need to do that. It doesn't help. So this is this third practice where we're really working with the level of wisdom. Wisdom can't deepen unless the doer gets out of the way. Because what, does, what is the proximate cause for wisdom? The proximate cause for wisdom is watching or knowing what the mind is doing and knowing the results of what it does. So, in other words, when the mind takes things personally, what are the results? When the mind doesn't take things personally, sees things as just the movement of nature, causes and conditions, what are the results of that? Without seeing that clearly, we don't have insight. And when we're personally involved in making something happen or stopping something from happening, we can't actually see how it all plays out and what leads to tension, what leads to entanglements, and what leads to freedom. So these are the three ways we practice. So when you sit, take some time at the beginning, check on your attitude creatively, skillfully, bring up a wholesome attitude. Then train in samadhi for some period of time in your set. Could be the big part of your 45 minutes, let's say, you have. So maybe, you know, 35, 30 minutes of that 45 minutes is really devoted to just training the mind towards simplicity, just this one thing, redirecting, starting over, being patient, being persistent, noticing the peacefulness, noticing the stillness, appreciating that inner happiness that develops sometimes when the mind settles down, really making that calm, that peace, a value, something you appreciate. Because it makes this third part of the work very easy, but always save a little bit of time, at least five minutes or so, and maybe it could be when you're already feeling steady and feel that the attitude is good, it might be the majority of your set, where you're just practicing open attention practice. Hands off the steering wheel. You're not controlling. You're not directing the attention. Whatever comes and goes is okay. Despicable thoughts can come and go. Uh, exalted, beautiful, sublime thoughts, images can come and go. Pain in the body can come and go. Pleasant sensations in the body can come and go. Whatever comes and goes, the mind just knows it. Oh, this is being known. Now this is being known. You're just knowing what's being known, knowing what the mind is doing, and knowing that when the mind is taking something personally, knowing what happens. And when the mind isn't taking it personally, knowing what happens. So that's the wisdom part. That's the harder part because it's very subtle. It's very easy to think you're practicing open attention, but you're really there just thinking. So that's why it really helps to emphasize the middle part, the quieting the mind down, appreciating stillness and silence. Because when the mind is really simple and still and quiet, then it's easier not to be fooled by the open attention practice, thinking that you're practicing, but you're just lost in thought. But when the mind's really quiet, you'll notice when you get lost in thought. You'll notice, oh, there was thinking. Thinking's happening. So you don't need to control the thinking, but you'll see it. Oh, it's just an activity of the mind. It's just thoughts. And you'll notice whether the mind's entangled, taking the thoughts personally, or just seeing the thoughts as a movement of nature. So I'll leave it here. We have about seven minutes. It would be nice to hear a few questions or maybe a few comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group. What have you been learning? What comes to mind? For some reason, I was um, that image of the monkey mind. Um, 
Right. And uh, I, I had a moment of compassion for the monkey mind. <laughs> uh, you know, and I thought, well, in a way, monkeys are kind of playful and they're agile. And so, you know, how do we bring out the positive qualities of how the mind works and, and recognize those and appreciate those? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you did that. And your example, what's your name? Kenneth, uh, your example is quite good, Kenneth, because, you know, uh, in that transition from emphasizing the second part to beginning to open to the third, I, I mentioned that, well, and like I said, this is seamless. You don't need to think of these three as having to be separate practices. So there you are. You're always working with the attitude, and you're always working with studying the attention, and you're always working with not taking anything personally. So there you are, maybe the middle part is the primary thing you're doing, the redirecting back to the breath, let's say, but you notice the monkey mind. And like I suggested in the guided sit, well, don't feel like you have to come right back to the breath. Maybe you could just take a moment and just let the monkey mind be known. Oh, this is monkey mind. And then you get that moment of practicing not taking the monkey mind personally. And what really helps is that adjustment and attitude, which you just did naturally, seamlessly, in, in the way you described, where you just realized intuitively, without even probably you doing it, with anybody doing it, just naturally that compassion would be useful here. So compassion was, oh, oh, it's just a monkey mind. Doing what the monkey mind does, it jumps around. And, and then you can notice something. When you have right attitude, then you don't need to rush back to your anchor, the breath, let's say. You can just be with that as your primary object for a while. And you notice some things, like you notice how agile the monkeys were. So the way I would translate that is that movement of the monkey mind, one thought leading to another thought leading to another thought, I'm guessing you were starting to see that that's just nature, that's not self. I'm not jumping from one thought to the next. Thoughts just jump from one thought to the next. That movement, that associative process of thinking that's nature. Are you actually doing that? No. If you look, you will see there is nobody jumping from one thought to the next. We think we are, superficially, but when we look, we see that naturalness, that agility, that nimbleness of the... because it's just a natural, effortless process of proliferation. Now, you can't see that, what Kenneth saw, if you're trying to control your mind. But because you corrected your attitude, you had a sense of compassion, which allowed the mind to remain steady as it noticed the monkey mind, which you called the monkey mind, you saw something about the monkey mind. Now, if you also noticed a moment later that you started to take it personally, you would have noticed that hurts. That's tight. And if you then noticed that you went back to just that compassionate, appreciative, oh, these are just monkeys jumping around. Then you would have noticed how light and not how much that was not a problem that there was a monkey mind. And those are those little insights I was talking about that we need to have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times that completely rewires the mind, transforms the mind. But we just have to see that about the mind over and over again. Thanks for sharing that. It's useful to hear. 
Time for maybe one more. If there's another comment or question, yeah. What's your name? I really appreciated the simple but profound thought that it's, it's my job to tell my mind, it's, so it's safe to be simplified. Yeah. Because I feel like my external world is so supportive of not believing that. And I didn't know you said of how many times I'm going to have to repeat that to myself and the practicing of it and the example of the dog, especially yeah. the puppy, because I think I can so easily have compassion for small animals. And then to bring that same compassion to my own brain and saying, this is okay. Yeah. It's okay to simplify. Yeah. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And again, you gave, give a good example of the seamlessness because in what you described, you're working with three parts of the practice. You're adjusting your attitude, right, by softening the attitude instead of a hard, aggressive, parental, or not a wholesome parental, but in-wholesome sort of neurotic parental energy, you know, You've got to be good. You've got to be with the breath. Just a more of an understanding. And part of that understanding, that shift of attitude, is this third part, which is understanding that the, the activity of the puppy isn't personal. Yeah? And then just that valuing the steadiness, that it is safe. So this is the thing. It's, it's really great to, to think about these as three separate but realize that as you're actually practicing, you're going to be doing all three at once. One may be sort of more dominant, but really you're going to be working with attitude all along. You need wisdom all along, the wisdom that it's all just stuff happening, causes and conditions happening. It's not really personal in the way that we're conditioned to think it is. And this great value of the mind being steady and simple. Because it's very hard to learn anything when the mind is complicated and all over the place. And it's relatively er easy to learn a lot when the mind is simple and quiet. Because in contrast to the quietness of the mind, all the neurotic activity really stands out. So it's easier to see. But when the mind is crazy and neurotic, neurotic activity does not stand out. <laughs> it's, it's like more of the same. So how are we going to learn anything? We won't. Let's just take a second, let go of the words. And appreciate being here together. Appreciating these teachings from the Buddha and then all the people, women, men, all the beings that in their busy lives, took up the practice, developed it, gained some fruit from their efforts, and were able to share the practice, the fruits, one generation after the next. And then we get to be the fortunate recipients of this great ancestral stream of practitioners. So now it's our turn to cultivate this wisdom, this compassion, this mindfulness in our lives, to realize the real benefits of peace and clarity, and to be part of the causes and conditions leading to the ongoing practice and benefits that come from it. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.